Hello and welcome once again, or welcome the first time, to the Journal of Adolescent and Adulters podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sroka. On this podcast, we highlight a recent article written in the journal and its implications for teachers and researchers. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is each week I get to explore something different related to literacy, and this has, a co- has caused me to expand my thinking and open me up to um, to having really interesting conversations and people in kind of varying fields. And today is no different. This week, we explore literacy as it relates to sound. As I speak with researchers Doug Friesen and Rob Simon about their article, Making Fahrenheit 451 Come to Life, Sound Inquiries with Youth and Teachers. And please stay tuned, or, or I should say rather, listen carefully because what starts out as a conversation about sound inquiry and a really interesting conversation about sound inquiry also turns into a really important conversation about how we as teachers can go about creating a more democratic and student-centered and inquiry-based classroom. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Rob Simon is an associate professor and associate chair of student experience in the Department of Curriculum, Teaching and Learning at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, University of Toronto and has been a teacher educator since, 2000, since 2003. OISC, at, at, at OISC, Rob teaches courses in critical literacy and practitioner research. He's also an academic director of the Center of Urban Schooling and director of Toronto Writing Project. Rob began his career in education in 1998 as a founding teacher of the Life Learning Academy, a high school, a high school for youth who experienced struggles in traditional settings. Rob's current research explores how teachers and students inquire into and co-research issues of social justice and how they use the arts, film, writing, and other creative mediums to share their findings with the world. Doug Friesen is a teacher and musician based in Toronto and has worked as a classroom teacher and consultant in public schools since 2002. During this time, he has also taught a number of post-secondary and additional qualification courses for teachers. He's currently an adjunct professor at Queen's University and is finishing up a PhD on sound and listening pedagogies with a focus on critical practitioner research and collaborative inquiry. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm now excited to be joined on the Journal of Adolescent Adult Literacy podcast by, doc- by Doug Friesen and Dr. Rob Simon. I appreciate you both for joining us. I'm excited to get into this conversation around sound. I'm gonna, I have show notes I'm going to try to stick to, but I'm also like just curious about some things and want to share my own experience with sound, but I'll try to stick to the show notes. It's going to be hard for me though. Um, can we begin? Let's start with you, Rob, maybe how you got interested in this work around uh, sound and critical literacy. Absolutely, Matt. Thank you so much for having us. Um, I started as a teacher in San Francisco many, many years ago and at a small school I helped start called Life Learning Academy for mostly court-involved kids, kids who'd had prior school struggles. And I quickly learned, as I think anyone who spent time in a high school classroom knows, that we have an awful lot to learn from our students, probably more than we have to teach them. Um, So finding ways to invite their lives and their interests and their full selves into the classroom became really central to my teaching practice. And over the years, that has involved bringing in the arts in various kinds of ways. Um, Fast forward many years, I've now been a teacher educator longer than I was a classroom teacher. But one of the real privileges that I have is to build collaborations and relationships with folks who are in classrooms. So I'm able to learn from their students 
as well as to have working partnerships with amazing teachers like Doug, who share with me their experiences as artists, as practitioners. Um, and so we're able to co-articulate that as part of my approach to teaching teachers, but it really is a part of a lifetime interest in learning alongside students. Oh, very cool. Yeah, love that. And, and Doug, what, what, what about you? What, what has drawn you into this area of sound and education? Yeah, well, I, 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 um, I feel like I, music is my, I'm a music, I'm a music teacher. I'm a public music teacher of uh, 20 years, two decades now. Um, and I did a music degree first and, and, um, I'll try and tell you the short version of the story, but, but I felt like I just stumbled, I barely stumbled into my music degree. Like, like that trombone audition was pretty hilarious. And I don't know, they must've really needed trombones that year, but I got in and I've spent, <laughs> I've spent most of my time since then, um, kind of experiencing and realizing how narrowly defined music is in a lot of, I think things are opening up now. Um, but how narrowly defined the word music is um, in institutions of music education. And and it started to really, really bum me out, actually. I don't know if that's okay to say that, but but and and I and I discovered at the same time uh, this uh, this Canadian composer named Armory Schaefer, who I think he's he's credited with the first maybe using or popularizing the popularizing the term soundscape. But he wrote a few things in the 60s and 70s about sound and listening and how sound and listening are, are often ignored, he suggested. And, and that um, these are different ways that offer us a different way to kind of experience the world if we think about sound as much as we think about sight or what appears to us. And so originally I was looking at his stuff just because it blew my mind how he was a music educator, and a composer, how it kind of did not narrowly define music at all. In fact, he set, he set the word music aside completely and just started talking about sound and creativity and agency um, with our sonic experiences. So that, that's what brought me to sound. And then to critical literacy is, is really being a part of Rob's research team, um, in particular, uh, critical practitioner research methodology where you know teachers and students are kind of centered at the center of like, these are the people that will help us transform schools, you know? And I was really, really blown away by that. And and a lot of the people, Rob, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that are connected to critical practitioner research are literacy scholars. It seems like it, it, it those two things are fairly connected. And and some of those folks have done a lot of work expanding what the word literacy means. And so I was really excited that Rob thought of sound and sonic experience, the stuff I was interested in, um, that uh, that that he thought it would fit into some of the literacy research. He was doing yeah i mean i think that's right mm-hmm. i think it, even on this podcast which focuses on authors from the journal of adolescent Dot literacy they come on here and talk about it often we talk about issues around critical literacies um so yeah that that's a that makes sense and again that's why i really am intrigued by this conversation because when we talk about critical literacies um even in this expanded kind of definition of, of literacy we often don't talk about sound and as you were talking doug i was even just thinking about you know, common core standards, and we talk about speaking and listening. But when we talk about listening, I always kind of interpret that as listening to someone else speak. So very kind of specific, <laughs> specific definition of listening. Um, but your work has caused me to expand my definition of listening, even um, what that looks like in the classroom. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sound inquiry as kind of you guys kind of contextualize your research behind this idea of sound inquiry? 
Um, I don't know if Rob or Doug, you want to pick up on sounding query? I can maybe get us started, Rob, if you want. Um, <laughs> so I kind of alluded to this already. So sound and, and sonic inquiry, to me, has been one path, and there's others, I'm sure, but that, that allows us to kind of lean beyond focusing on appearance and sight. Um, so in terms of <clears throat> literacy, or let's say in terms of research, we often look at transcripts, you know, and, and we, we take recordings and make them into transcripts where what if we treat the sound itself as data and experiencing the sound and, and what, I can't believe I'm going to do this. Here it comes. I'm going to reference post-structural, um, but Bart, Bart calls it the grain of the voice, you know, and if we, and if we're able to listen to the grain of the voice, the inflections, the rhythms, the rise and fall, there's so much more there than just the words. So, so that is one um, thing that I think Sonic Inquiry allowed us to kind of, I guess I said, like I said, lean beyond what appears. And then I already said this, but it allowed me to kind of think beyond, to set, you know, defaults aside and, and think sound itself is, in my sense, is physical and embodied. It's a, there's physical vibrations that hit us. So it automatically lends itself to this, that experience is embodied, you know. Um, what we talk about, what we read about, those those often stay in the head, whereas sound and sonic experiences is embodied, which brings up emotions, which brings up personal emotions. And so that to me is, I guess, the, no, no, Rob, the, the, the reason I was excited about sound inquiry, it's just a way to lean past a lot of those defaults. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think, just listening to your response, Doug, what, one of the things that's exciting about this work is that it's not only not just in the head and in the body, but it's in the space that we share in an interesting kind of way. So it's, it's social and collaborative and invites people to interact um, in ways that I think classrooms sometimes don't. So I think very often, as much as we try to invite uh, communities or build communities in classrooms, we're really just looking for correct answers or certain kinds of responses from individual kids. And in the article, we highlight some of the ways that this was collaborative. I think, for example, the passing the newspaper around the room. But an activity like this makes you conscious, not just of sound and of your embodied interaction with a text, but of the person sitting next to you in a really important, powerful way. So you can't do that activity without the person sitting on your right side and the person on your left side who's passing the newspaper to you or to whom you're passing the newspaper. Um, so it, it, it forces us, I think, to be sensitive or be attuned to the people in the room in a, in a really powerful way. Yeah, I think that's good. I at the end of your, I'm jumping, we're jumping. I'm sorry, guys, I got to go there. At the end of your article, so we're going to talk about your research, but then the article, you make this interesting point where you talk about, I'm going to quote you here real quick. You say, deeper listening to one another and to our surroundings can lead to, to new ways of interacting with text and to more democratic practices of teaching, lear learning, and researching. Um, in this argument that listening is kind of, can be a political act, this idea of listening carefully. And I remember I read that the first time and I thought, Doug, Rob, are we going a little bit too far with this listening as a political act? 
And then I started thinking about it more. <laughs> and I remember just kind of having this aha moment. And like, it's true, like we don't listen enough. We're not attuned to one another enough. Um, we listen to our own voices in our heads, I think, quite often. But do we hear different perspectives? And do we really, truly, like, pay attention to others in the room and listening to what they say? And I don't think we do very well. Um, and your study kind of forces people to what you said, Rob, be attuned to the people in the room and be attuned to to uh, the sounds they're making and not just the sounds they're making uh, or not, and, and not just the words they're saying, but like how they're saying it and and all that. I, I think that's um, I think that's that's really true. So. So you do this in English. So let's get to your research um, back up here. I, I told you I was going to do it. I already did it. Jumped right ahead to the end. Um, <laughs> you, you start with uh, you choose Fahrenheit 451 as your text. Um, can you can you talk us a little bit about why why choose Fahrenheit four five one for this study or kind of even why use it in the classroom? Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm happy. I'm happy to, to share. But I'm going to do something too, which is I'm going to jump back to your last comment and <laughs> oh, then I'll please do. Please do. Fahrenheit. As long as we're breaking rules, Matt, I'm I'm assuming that's an we invitation. We make our own rules in the podcast. <laughs> So I just, I, as I was, as I was listening to your response about that idea of listening being political, I just wanted to, I wanted to mention two things. One is that uh, listening and um, dialogue is the root of critical pedagogy. It's the root of Frarian problem posing education and learning. We, we cannot have, I think, a critical literacy classroom without thoughtful and intentional listening to in communication. Um, and often that's communication across difference uh, because we have to make space, not that we all have to be in chorus and everyone agrees, it's not some um, fantasy utopia, but to say that we make space for negotiating and speaking and learning across difference in ways that are productive and hopefully progressive in the sense that we are moving toward um, some kind of uh, more, more just or more equitable um, practices. Mm -hmm. The other piece I think that you that you alluded to is the sort of political moment that we're in, where we find it increasingly difficult to listen across differences, political lines, uh, differences of perspectives or backgrounds, experiences, location. Um, so I feel like we're at a moment where listening across difference maybe takes on an even more serious uh, concern. So um, it does seem to me that the idea of not just stopping talking while someone else speaks, but actually taking time to take in their perspectives, uh, their standpoints and perspectives on the world, um, that that actually does have the potential of maybe moving us forward in some interesting, important ways. Um, yeah, I, I, so I uh, re recently we had a guest on the podcast talking about social media literacy. And how social media is becoming more um, geared toward the user to feed the user with things that reinforce their existing kind of identities and beliefs, right? And so as they spend more time on TikTok, it, it reinforces their identity by giving them more videos of beliefs and perspectives that they already inherently agree with um, and less perspectives that are different and outside. And so school, and then, and then school also becomes, I think, now an even more important space because you are in a room, right, with people who are different, who think differently than you, you're exposed to diverse views of thought. And so I think 
having this in the classroom, right, where you're asking students to to pay attention to voices around you um, becomes an even more important space because, yeah, as you said, in this, in this climate, in this environment, with social media, with, um, you know, talked about it, news, you can watch the news that aligns with your political beliefs. Um, but but school is not like that, right? School is not aligned with political beliefs. Usually the public school system is aligned with a variety of beliefs um, and a variety of perspectives and a variety of backgrounds. And so how important that we're asking students to to pay attention, right? To sound and to stay attuned to those around them in this kind of public educational space. Absolutely. So it's not just the root of, of critical literacy or critical pedagogy, but it's the root of empathy, you know, yeah. and, and understanding yeah. in a sense. Um, so I've been I've been rambling a bit, but you did ask a question, and I dodge my question, it. Rob Fahrenheit four five one that I refused to answer previously, but I'm happy to return to Matt. Um, thanks for your indulgence. Um, so I, I've worked for a number of years with a, a research partner, teaching partner, Sarah Evis, who teaches a, at a, um, an intermediate school in Toronto. And so largely we are guided by text choices based on her compass. I think that what she feels is particularly relevant or pressing in a political moment or what she feels the needs of a particular group of students are in that moment. Um, so these are uh, eighth grade students. And um, over the years, we've chosen a number of different texts. I think we mentioned some of those in the article, including the, the book Mouse by Art Spiegelman, um, Beautiful Music for Ugly Children by, by Kirsten Crone Mills. And these books are chosen because they feel like they're responding to a particular pressing need that Sarah has, has identified in her classroom, but also because it appeals to us as a community of teacher, learner, artists, researchers, um, that it helps us to get at some things that we think might be powerful or interesting kinds of, kinds of activities or, or projects to take on with the, with the kids. These collaborations don't just happen in an eighth grade classroom. But over the years, they have also been part of my teacher education practice, which has involved bringing grade eight students into conversation with uh, teacher candidates who are hoping to go into middle school or high school classrooms in the future um, and learn alongside kids. So they're reading books together and they're co-creating curriculum. Um, we chose Fahrenheit because at the moment we were teaching Fahrenheit, we felt like we were in the middle of a, of a moment in the world where we were all feeling pressures of censorship, of um, government overreach, of a rise of, of uh, nationalism, uh, sort of, sort of um, a, a, a in, a, in a kind of way that felt like it was threatening some of the things that we might hold dear in, as, as classroom teachers, but as human beings. Um, so the other reason I think that we were drawn to Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit is obviously an older text, published in 1953 by Ray Bradbury. Um, it is a text that is commonly taught in classrooms, and we made that choice intentionally because we wanted to choose a text that might be more readily available to teachers. We were also aware that it was a text that was written by a white cisgendered male author. So that was something that we wanted to take on in a certain way, and some of the questions of canon and why certain texts are taught and others aren't because every time you make a choice to invite a text into the classroom, we are also in maybe simultaneously choosing to not include many other texts. Sure. The other aspect 
this. Uh, Doug Doug invoked Bart earlier, so I will bring Bart back into the conversation. <laughs> but I think Fahrenheit is what I would call a, a what Bart would call a writerly text in the sense that it leaves a lot of gaps and indeterminacies. In other words, spaces for young people to write themselves into the narrative, spaces for inviting sound and listening in ways that maybe um, a more readerly text in Bard's term, the text that's more tightly constructed may not. So this made space not only for sound and listening activities, but a lot of arts-based activities. We actually um, used erasure poetry, a technique of, of crossing out words and creating poems on individual pages to turn Fahrenheit 451 into an entire book of collaboratively authored poems that we called Free 451, which is available on the Addressing Justice's website. So all of those kinds of activities were ways of writing into the spaces and the gaps and the possibilities that Ray Bradbury left for us. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And 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 just kind of the English teacher in me too, thought immediately was seeing that that um, Fahrenheit 4451 is, well, that's, I've taught that text before as a former uh, high school English teacher. And you talk a lot about in that text about kind of people use technology in that in that story to distract them from the world around them, right? And your study is asking people to do the opposite, right? You're, you're, you're using sound and technology to ask students to pay more attention to, 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 to the world around them. So I thought that was kind of that interest connection with Fahrenheit um, as well. Um, can I can so, I also add? Sorry, yeah, okay. add um, I this is related to what Rob said, but I just love the idea when we started talking about it on the research team. Like, I love the idea of all these kind of possibly dusty stacks of Fahrenheit four five one being in you know what I mean. And I love the idea that maybe people would be like, uh, how do I say it? less reverential with them? Do you know what I mean? Like, like so mm -hmm. we could kind of mess with how the canon is often taught. You know, because because we really. I think we were really excited about the idea about how many books can we destroy? And it didn't, it, it, in a, in a productive way, you know what I mean? Like, like, so the Sonic inquiries remix the text and we can talk about that in a bit, but, but actually, you know, crossing out words. And I think there was one group that burned a few pages of the book and there was one group, you know, so, so I think we really wanted to disrupt how Canon is normally taught, you know, it's like, here's a canonical work, but you can mess with it. You know what I mean? It's 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 ready to be messed with, you know. Oh yeah, and um, I don't want to get too off topic here, Doug. But you started it. The, the but the, this idea of, of of the canon, where I think we've done a really good job as as um, school systems and English departments of recognizing that there's value in young adult literature and finding ways. There's a lot of research out there now about ways to bring young adult literature into the classroom, but it still feels there's still this vibe where young adult literature is a place for independent reading and a place for book studies or, uh, you know, a s small group book studies. But for serious whole class novels, we go back to the canon. Yeah. And so I appreciate kind of pushing back against that and, um, and kind of putting everything on a level playing field more, uh, more so. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's get to the sound inquiries. You, um, you, um, you added, can, can you explain kind of what you did with Fahrenheit 451 and the sound inquiries and what you had your students do? Uh, for for the, for this study, yeah. So in I think in the article we explained it. We we started with a few. Rob mentioned uh, some of them, kind of just just um, attunements to sonic experience. So so something as simple as I ask folks to explain the first the first sound they heard in the morning. But I but I push them 
to try and describe the sounds of it as opposed to telling us what it is. Because if you tell us what it is, it's just done. It's done. Whereas if you describe what it is, we're trying to experience it with you and we're trying to get into your, you know, your experience of that. And it's hard to do actually. So, so we encouraged folks into that kind of way of, of not labeling things, which I think is often kind of a site based thing Mm -hmm. and trying to describe the experience of these things. And then I had some sound and tell. I think I did sound and tell um, where I brought, I, I made a sound out of my backpack with their eyes closed. And, and I said, try and describe, fight the urge to label what it is. Try and describe <laughs> it, you know, try and describe the sound it makes. And it's really, people come up with the most amazing things. But the best part of that to me is that all the descriptions they say are true. You know, like it's true. Like every person's experience of that is their personal, emotive, embodied experience of it. Whereas if I just said, oh, it's this, um, you know, the wooden, I often use the wooden frog, you know, mm-hmm. um, from, I got, I got a gift given to me when I was teaching in Brazil, um, one of those frogs that you, you, anyways. And, and so if I show them it, it's like, oh, it's that. No, all your experiences are totally true. And, and the personal stuff is, is as true and as useful and maybe more useful than us just labeling what it is. And then getting into the book, <clears throat> we did some similar exper- experiential stuff where I picked a passage that I read aloud. And then I, um, I can't remember exactly the order of things, but, but um, we added some sounds to like further reading. So I read it again, but we had like sounds being made. We decided what sounds would be interesting to make during, during the reading. So we just kind of did some experimentations with adding sound to the reading aloud of the text. Um, And then we moved them into groups Rob, you can fill in things if I'm missing things, but we moved them into groups and asked them to record um, excerpts that we picked, record speaking the excerpts. They could decide if it was multi-voiced or just one voice, but that they could add sounds and add effects and mess the recordings. So we did a little how-to with uh, what's called a DAW, like a digital audio workstation. I think we used GarageBand because we had iPads available, but Soundtrap is one I use a lot, free cloud-based one on Google. And we asked them to record um and add sounds and add effects and mess with the text and so they made little sonic audio plays of these excerpts in groups again like with some of the grade eight students with some of the teacher candidates um who were in rob's class at the time i like that that's that that's really cool so you first kind of introduce them to 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 describing sound so they kind of get used to this um it's kind of viewing sound and trying not to label it and then you add your own kind of sound to to to, to the background of some of the por- portions of the text, and then you have students do this and add voices and add sounds to the background. And I think there's also something happening here too in terms of um, kind of the reading experience too, right? Because and I know I know this is I'm I'm big into audiobooks now that I have children and I have less time to sit and read. I do audiobooks a lot now, and I always appreciate when they add like some some sounds to the audiobook, even like just to introduce a chapter to kind of set the mood and set the vibe. And so I, I'm curious about, and if you guys talk a little bit about how sound changed the reading experience for the students. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. Rob, you might have some memories of it, but because this is, well, I think maybe some people listening might think, oh, well, what, what do you, like, how much difference would it, would it, would it, you know, would it have, but it, it really does often make a huge difference. Even something as simple. I remember one time with a high school student, this is a different, he was like sweeping the wall and it was making this like, you know, brush, like this kind of wave sound. 
and someone did the read the excerpt again and it just completely shifted and everyone was breathing differently right these are so yeah. this relates back to this narrow idea of what music is this is a musical thing this is co- using my argument now is that sonic agency actually is composing it's it's shaping sound and it's changing how people breathe and it's changing how people are are present in the moment when they're listening to whatever it may be in this case it was this excerpt of text i don't know rob if you remember the change but it did feel like people people were affected by it well i think um there 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 are a number of things i would say about that one is maybe so obvious we wouldn't think about it but typically when we ask folks to read a text in a high school or intermediate school english class they're reading it on their own so we ask them to come to our classrooms already having read a piece and then there is some kind of discussion or some kind of assignment that's attached to that reading but we don't actually ask them to reread or re-experience or perform the text not that we don't do that, but we don't as commonly do that in classrooms. So I'm thinking about, for example, in the sound play groups, we would see them reread text multiple times and they would do it um, often in, in choral readings or with simultaneously produced sounds. So I'm thinking, for example, Matt, I, I know you know Fahrenheit from having taught it previously, but the main character, Montag, at one point is... Uh, He's realized that he's been complicit in this corrupt practice of removing books, burning books, and uh, he's now being hunted and chased down. So he's being chased by these mechanical dogs, these terrifying creatures. And one group, Doug, if you remember, they were they were working with that section of the text. I think we may write about it in the article. And in order to in order to perform that text, they all had to be reading, making sounds, banging on the tabletop simultaneously to try and create the feel that they wanted to convey of, of this person being oppressed by society, this person being run down um, by, a, by a government organization that they once were uh, supportive of. Um, and that is a very different kind of reading than I'm going to get through to the end of chapter three and I'm going to have a, a quiz I have to prepare for or I'm going to be in a book group conversation. Um, so it really does change the the physical um, engagement with the text and the way that the text is shared in the class. I think. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking about even just storytelling. How storytelling is kind of designed to be a collaborative thing, right? Or designed at least to be heard by multiple people in one sitting. And yet, often we ask kids to read stories off kind of by themselves. Um, and the power of reading stories and kind of creating sound together is is really cool and while they're doing that while they're adding all those voices um as you point out rob they have to you know our students are are are, are, they have to have an understanding of the mood of the story right they have to have kind of a deep understanding of the emotions of the main character of montag in that in that scene so not only are they making cool sounds they're doing some good analysis right with the text as well with um which which is cool. So you're you're do, kind of doing both those things, and I and I imagine when you play those sounds to other groups, kind of share the sounds out. Not everybody obviously would come up with the same sound. So like um, Doug was pointing out before, this kind of the individual nature of sound, right? And how they, they there's this individual component of what they hear and um and and what they create, right? And that's 
there's so much I feel like individuality here to kind of make the the that that piece of text feel like the way that you felt when you were reading it. Uh, so I think that's I think it's cool. Um, so any other um, cool things that came out of kind of creating group sounds? Any any um, any other kind of takeaways from from kids working in groups, creating sounds together? One of the things that I remembered while while you were talking, Rob, was when we did before the sound plays were created. When we did those experiments with reading that excerpt over and over again, with adding different sounds, that the kids were so amazing. They had they had strong opinions and were ready to. You know what I mean? I would like more traffic. I would have liked more. So even at first, if people thought this is a bit mm-hmm. of a strange thing, why are we doing this? Will this actually? All of a sudden, they were like offering opinions, and this is in front of like teacher candidates too, university students. But I remember one of them saying, yeah, we need more traffic sounds here or more. more." He- and, and so this idea, I know they made these sound plays and they become a fixed thing then. But but there's all these different opinions that came up about how they wanted to experience it again. You know, and again, these kind of personal, personal decisions that that came up. Um, and I love that because I, uh, I don't you probably don't need me to keep t- harping back to it. But I just felt so frustrated as a music educator when it was like, use the method book, have them do this song. And it's like, I just don't want to do hot cross buns again, you know? And, and, and I, and why are we doing it? Why do kids, why should I convince kids that they should care about playing hot cross buns badly? But, but I think that practice began then where I said, let's just mess with it. Let's make our own version of it. Let's remix it. And, and that, that seemed like what was happening with these sound plays too. They were, they were, they were engaging with the text in a deep way, but they were also messing with it. And that's why we um, we reference someone who I'm just I just love this book so much this um, Kovel Eschen book called uh, More Brilliant Than the Sun Sonic Adventure and it it I, we borrow his idea of sonic fiction which he uses the word to to describe how DJs remix the past in order to change how they feel a group of people feel in the present and then that changing imagines new possibilities for the future totally messing with temporal time altogether and so so i know that's maybe a bit of a stretch but to me it felt like we were reaching towards that same idea of remixing this canonical this canonical um text yeah because they're becoming kind of co-creators right in in the understanding and the meaning as they add sound they help they began they go from being kind of passive readers of the text to active creators who are helping create the mood and feel and um of that text um, and even the emotions, right, of the characters in, uh, in, 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 in those scenes. So, Absolutely. yeah, very active involvement. Yeah, I would say, I would say, just to add a bit to that, Matt, is that it also changes our role as adults, as teachers in the room. Mm. So it becomes anti-authoritarian in a really interesting way. So we often, I, I was, I was a nervous new English teacher not that long ago. Maybe it was decades ago. Now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> Thinking that if I taught a book like Fahrenheit, I had to I had to get the themes in. I had there's certain mm-hmm. amount of historical context. There's certain kinds of things that they need to know or be able to do to analyze a text. All of that is still very much a part of the reality for for literacy teachers across K to 12 into adult classrooms. Um, but this loosens the expertise a little bit. It it, it is essentially democratic because 
each person is given space to respond and they're responding to one another. So the learning is co-created. Um, it invites play in an interesting kind of way. And I think that it redefines academic rigor in an English classroom, which often is maybe not how we intend it to be, but sometimes we find ourselves uh, falling in line with maybe how we were taught or how we think we're supposed to teach other people's stakeholders' expectations who hold purchase on our choices, our curriculum, our policies, et cetera, that govern how, how uh, teaching and learning happens in schools. But um, rather than sort of worrying too much about right answers, this invites a whole host of possibilities. That's why I think um, when, Doug, you mentioned sonic inquiry previously, I think a part of that idea is rooted in the idea of an inquiry stance that Marilyn Cochran Smith and Susan Lytle developed and so many of us have learned from over the years that uh, it leaves us open to the possibilities that kids bring into their readings as opposed to um, having a road in our minds that we have to guide them toward or a specific answer um, that we need to get them to. So I'm just, I'm still still stuck on that that broom on the wall that you described previously, Doug, and imagining what that sounds like but the other thing that I was thinking about when you were sharing that story is the kids that are around the person who's sweeping on the wall are thinking, well, what could I do or what other sounds might we bring to this? Or he wants this sort of whooshing sound, but maybe there's something else that would bring out a different dimension of the text that I'm interested in, right? So it encourages play and creativity in really powerful ways. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And it does. It challenges our definition of rigor. Um, because in that scenario, right, it requires rigor to, to understand and know what sounds and to bring your own understanding of the text and to create that sound. And it requires collaboration, right? Something where always trying to do well is find ways to collaborate well to, uh, to, together. So I think it's, I think it's rigorous, just not in the, in the, how we often, I think, think of rigor as, well, you got to write a five paragraph essay about this to show that you really understand it. Um, so I like that. And I like how it incorporates um, kind of, I was thinking about this kind of broader definition of literacy, and with new literacies, right? We understand that that students are, are, and and we as humans, right, are often not just writers and readers right now because we're becoming creators more so with all the digital platforms, right? We're creating things, and so this sounds very kind of authentic and relevant um, to the literacy lives of our students in that they are asking, we're asking a broader view of literacy to be creators, right? And they're creating. Um, the sound that backs up the that supports the text. I think it's really neat. I was also thinking while you guys were talking about there's like this trend on TikTok to to either remove laughs or add laughs to sitcoms. So like they're doing with, with the the office uh, and they were adding a laugh track to the office, which has no laugh track, right? It's just kind of these awkward pauses and silences. And it makes the scenes a lot less funny when you take and it's just a completely different vibe and feel when you add the laugh track to the office. Um, and, and we, and we know this, right. We know the power that sound has on our emotions and how we feel. And when we think about reading, we also know that reading involves, um, a transaction between the reader and the text that incorporates their environment, right. That incorporates where they are, how they're feeling their emotions. It incorporates the sound they're hearing in the background. Um, yet we often don't think about those things. So again, your study encourages us to, to, to think about those ideas. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also thinking 
logistically here. <laughs> uh, eighth grade, using something like GarageBand. Um, was it a challenge technologically getting all the kids on the same page? What, what challenges did, did you run into trying to conduct this study in terms of like getting students to, to do the work? Yeah, I, I always run into challenges um, when I'm introducing people to like a DAW, like GarageBand or Soundtrap or, or Fruity Loops or because um, I think these tools are meant to, you know, be kind of, they're like toaster ovens, like everyone can use them, go, do you know what I mean? And so, so mm -hmm. it feels, it, it kind of already disrupts this idea of, I'm going to give you a lesson and I'm going to show you how to do it because that's not what they're developed for, right. you know? Um, so, so I think that we tried to find the line between, I did have a how-to, you know, like I had, a f I think I had like 10 steps, you know, like uploading your files, shorten it, how to shorten them, how to, how to flip them, how to add effects. Like I did, we did have like a, a, a how-to document, but these kids are so used to digging into apps just on their own. Right. And mm -hmm. so, and so that's a good thing in a way, you know, but then that does end up having some kids be frustrated because they, they want the how-to and they want, so, so I think it, I don't know if we, it was perfectly smooth. Um, I think we were kind of running around um, trying to make sure one of us could check in with groups to make sure they were able to, you know, record. And then the same thing when they were editing, I spent some time with the kids sitting with them just to kind of re-illuminate or re-amplify re the possibilities that were available to them. Um, but it is tough, you know, it's like, um, there's so many people that have made how to, you know, videos for these kinds of things, but I don't, I find that they don't always work for how kids want to engage with them. I don't know, Rob, do you remember how it went? Um, yeah, I don't think t teaching is never a storm-free sea of meeting students' needs. There are always <laughs> bumps along the way and things you don't anticipate. And um, that's one thought. The other thought is, uh, I think you you mentioned this previously, Matt, um, young people increasingly are content creators, not just content consumers. So right. typically, I think those of us who teach, and particularly the older I get, the more reluctant or nervous I might get about new technologies, um, young people have very different relationships to some of these new technologies. And even the idea of seeing themselves as creating or creators with, with technology. So um, very often in my experience, bringing technologies like the, uh, the sound work and, and programs like GarageBand into classrooms, they already have experiences with this. They may have other software they'd prefer to use or they're more familiar with. But um, typically, I think we find more of them are confident in using the technology than the adults in the room who maybe yeah. have lots of questions and concerns about using it the right way or doing the project the right way. So um, I think that's, that's sort of one, one thought about that. And I guess a, an attached thought is Doug maybe didn't Put a number on it, but you already know if you've listened to Doug for a bit, he has been a music and sound educator for a very long time. And if you recall from my response to your initial question, Matt, I said something about how I came into the teaching profession, but I did not mention being a music or sound educator. Right. So I have been in and around English classrooms for decades. Um, I feel very comfortable in teaching texts and working with texts in all kinds of ways. I did mention 
inviting um, different kinds of arts practices into my classroom. But so some of your listeners or readers of this article might say, okay, sure, that's fine. You get a guy who's taught sound and listening and music for two decades, and of course you can make sound plays in the classroom. But I've got all of these other pressures, and I've got all these students to work with, and I'm not familiar with GarageBand or these other technologies. And I guess the hope I have for folks that are encountering this work is that they, like me, will have gained some new insights into how we might invite kids and their creative practices more fully into our English classrooms, our, our English language arts classrooms, and how we might let go of some of the don't knows, can'ts, or shouldn'ts, or aren't sure how to do's that we might carry with us as, as English teachers. Um, because what I've learned from Doug is I, I always value, Doug is coming into a classroom with academic upgrading students I'm working with at a local community college this week to do sound work. But I also know from, from working alongside you, Doug, all of these years, that your work has been an invitation for me to say, you know what, I can do some of this work. If I were a sole instructor in this classroom, I can bring in a newspaper and have folks pass around and, and just attune themselves to one another and to the sounds that they're making or not making. I can invite them to think of the first sound memory that they have or what they heard first or record their on their commute into work, they've all got, uh, for the most part, they all have some kinds of technologies that would allow them to record environmental sounds on their way into school in the morning. And we could bring those or invite those into the classroom in different sorts of ways. So I guess I'm rambling now, but I just wanted to say that as someone who is not a sound person, um, I, I haven't spent decades doing this work, um, this, is, this experience has allowed me to feel like I could. And that to me is so hopeful. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I was thinking about my, my myself five, five years ago and what would prevent me from doing this in my classroom. And as you were talking, I said, well, what if the students, my question kind of premised on what, what struggles do the students have? But Rob, you were right to point out, my real concern is what's going to happen when I don't have the answer, right? Like what happens when... <laughs> A student has a question that I don't have the answer. And so my concern is more from me as the, you mentioned that the authoritarian figure, like me as the authoritarian, me as the teacher, the expert in that classroom, by doing this activity, I have to kind of step back from my expertise and recognize that some of my students are going to know more about this than, than I can, that than, than I do. Some of their answers are going to be turned to a classmate who's already done this, ask them because I don't know how to do it. And that makes me as a it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because all of a sudden, um, I am not the expert in the room, which sounds really good. What you said before about students kind of being the experts and um, uh, the students in a classroom, but also makes me just as a teacher very nervous. <laughs> so I think that's another uh, yeah. another hesitancy would be to recognize that you don't have all have to all the have to have all the answers, right? Like we can navigate this thing together as a class, and we can figure it out. That that is that is challenging for all of us as teachers. Um, it's unsettling, but uncertainty is conditional. Uncertainty is a condition of teaching across K through adult. Everyone who has ever been in a classroom, who has ever tried to invite people into some kind of learning engagement, they all know when we say teaching is an uncertain project. And it's going to involve moments where you're just not exactly sure what's happening or whether you made the right choices in the moment or 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. So that's, I think, once we embrace the idea that uncertainty is conditional to teaching, we maybe let loose or loosen our hold on the idea that we have to be so certain. Uh, we have to know the answers about everything and that everything depends on us. And if we don't know the answer, that things are going to fall apart. Um, I, I learned that early on in my teaching career when I had to come out of the closet as a terrible speller. Uh, I'm writing on the board and every fourth word is, is unintelligible, not to mention I have terrible handwriting. But, so my writing's unintelligible, but it's also incorrectly spelled. And I won't talk about my grammar, but, the, but what that does is it leaves an opening for kids to become expert spellers, kids to step up to the blackboard who are expert spellers or to correct me, right? There's, a, there's an opening yeah. for other people to share what they're good at, what they're drawn to, what they're interested in. Um, and it, that vulnerability as a teacher, I think, humanizes us and invites us into different relation with our students as well, not just as knowers, but as human beings. Yeah. No, I think that's well um, said. And you Rob, if you write poorly enough and they can't read your handwriting, they won't know you're spelling it wrong. So that's, what <laughs> that's a good tip. <laughs> I, I can't help but compa- compare this to music education too. Like I was trained to be a band conductor. Like I was trained to know every fingering on the clarinet, on the flute, on the, and 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 yet i re- i think i started to realize that that certainty that i thought i had was actually stopping kids from being sonic age like creative musicians because i thought that certainty makes us think this is what we're supposed to do that we're going to always do this whereas if there's moments to be vulnerable and open up and trust that the people in the room are going to bring something special and if they have a chance you know, to, to have room to do so, especially like with a canonical text or something, then, then it's going to happen. You know, it's really, it's really like infectious to me. Like as soon I had a moment, I won't bore you with the story, but where I'm like, Oh, I thought they were going to start making fun of me or start, but no, mm. it completely shifted the interaction and we learned something together. And since then that's like 18 years ago or so, I just want to do it more and more, you know, it's like yeah. let, letting go and realizing how we can shape it together as a group you know, shape whatever we're doing. Yeah, no, that's well said. So as we're thinking about kind of all all your study and your ideas around sound inquiry, um, it makes totally sense. I mean, you can do it for Fahrenheit 451, but it seems like this would lend itself to many other texts, canonical or non-canonical texts. It just seems like we could do a lot of cool stuff with this. What about, have you thought about other, how this shows up in other disciplines, other content areas? How might teachers in other content areas apply some of these ideas into their classroom? It's a good question. <laughs> um, I'm teaching a course called Integrating Music Across the Curriculum. Uh, next, that's next semester, though. So, um, Oh, this is yeah, a little preview here, then. <laughs> um, no, I feel like it, it, what we were just talking about definitely relates, you know, like, like unfortunately, well, I don't want to say unfortunately, it's good that we have specialists um, like in, in Canada anyways, I'm sure it's the same in the States that, you know, you teach, especially in secondary schools, you teach the thing you studied, you mm-hmm. know, but, but sometimes that expertise actually narrows, narrows that thing that was studied, you know? And so I feel like that lesson we were just talking about, like sometimes you being the expert is actually stopping the people in the room from having an opinion on something and having a take on something. Um mm-hmm. One of the things one of my mentors did, this guy, Murray Schaefer, that I talked about, um, and this is maybe the only thing I could say right now off the sp- uh, on the spot, but 
he he brought his class out. I did this recently, actually, to a tree, and uh, and said, um, as a mathematician, how can you study this tree? And and they had some ideas, you know. As a scientist, how do you study all these things? As an artist, how do you study? As a, basically just saying, all these things are just lenses through which we experience the world, right? And and that mm-hmm. experience should always be personal. Hopefully, even while you learn, you know certain languages or certain expertise around 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 certain disciplines disciplines of study i don't know if that really answered your question but but i feel like um letting go of there needing to be a right answer could go in any subject you know like i know that that's hard to do in math i've taught math too but at the same time i i I really feel like math should be (laughs) a way to interact with the world as opposed to a right and wrong can you help me on that last one rob was that a little too far out there maybe (laughs) (laughs) i was actually i was actually going to return the question i said you know i know i know that doug has taught math and i wonder how you use sound in math (laughs) class well okay let me tell you i'll I'll tell you how i i i don't know if i used sound necessarily but it's sound i asked them all one day to write them write down what they feel how they're feeling about math right now this is a grade 11 course so in, in in ontario and canada some this course was the the last course that people have to take. Like some of these people have hated math their whole life, and they have to take one more credit and never take it again. You know, mm-hmm. and so I asked them to write a few sentences about how they feel about math, and then I said, "Circle, circle a few words," and then we did a little out loud sound poem um, that acknowledged how everyone's feeling about the thing. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying that changed the subject matter, but it changed how we felt in the room and it allowed people to have a, at least a little bit of agency in terms of like. It's okay to feel this way and still have to do this thing. Or I don't know. Maybe I'm way off now. No, 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 Doug. I think that aligns with how our conversation started, right? That we need to be more attuned to other people and to how they're feeling and to their perspectives. And and, and that activity um, caused them to, to step back and be more attuned, not just with kind of how they were feeling, but with how other people were feeling in the room, which I'm sure is also really helpful for that teacher to hear, right? About how people are feeling in, in that room. Um, and all, for all of us, right, to be more attuned to how everyone is feeling and all those different voices in our classroom. I think that's that's only a good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's we 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 start with a quote from one of the students about analyzing books through emotions. Um, and and uh, you know when I read it when I read a book now I I don't analyze I don't analyze it for meaning or grammar in the same kind of way. I, I'm feeling my way or feeling the experience of a book in, in, in a different way. And uh, that feels to me just uh, so fundamentally important, relationally important, um, that we have a kind of affective engagement with text in, a, in an English classroom, but really any classroom. But as I said previously, it's also the, it's also at the very heart of developing empathy or encouraging empathy among young people um, so that we are not just attuned to our own emotional responses and engagement, but to those around us as well. Um, and that feels to me to be at the heart of meaningful, meaningful teaching regardless of subject matter. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I sounds like we already answered this, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, give you guys the space and opportunity. If there's any other kind of, as we wrap up this podcast, any other pieces of advice for teachers who uh, read the article, maybe are interested, maybe a little bit nervous, putting their ju- jumping into the world of of, of sound inquiry, uh, sound plays, but 
is there any advice you would have for for teachers who want to find ways to incorporate more sound and and to kind of to do these ideas in their classroom? Uh, any kind of last words of advice for them? I'm trying to think about what I haven't said, but maybe I'll just uh, try and remember what I have you can, said. You can emphasize <laughs> some of the things you already said um, before. I think that's fine too. I, I, I'm talking from my own experience, but but just again to emphasize this idea of of letting go of needing to be the expert mm. and how exciting it is. You know, of course we're still holding the space. Of course we're still making sure folks you know feel safe and 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 but but letting go of being the expert and realizing that that content knowledge you know which lends itself to like being the expert is actually not necessarily the main thing that's happening in your classroom you know and it's definitely for in my mind not the most exciting thing <laughs> like you know and so so it's it's how we feel about these things and how we understand them and how we understand each other that's much more exciting so so even as a music teacher now to me it's like I'm teaching university now, but but um, no matter what the subject matter is, it's just a, a, a box, a container for us to kind of explore um, certain paths of, of understanding um, together, you know, and that that path towards understanding to me is much more exciting as a teacher. Once I started letting go a little bit, when I was when I when people in the room were allowed to share their stories and their takes on things and how they understood or Dis disliked even or or how they felt about what we were talking about so um if you can find a moment to let go and try something out you know even as silly as you know um everyone tell me how they're feeling at the same time and the whole class just, just letting go of you know silly little things you you might you might realize like i did how how um how energetic how, how it kind of feeds you you know it's it and, it and it and it feels like oh this is really how I want to keep interacting with folks you know in a more reciprocal yeah. way. Yeah, I think that's and I, I appreciate this interview. This interview has not gone exactly as expected because <laughs> you guys are bringing up uh, and that I don't mean that that sounds maybe as a negative. <laughs> that's not how I intended. No, it. we nailed it. We nailed it. I think. <laughs> but you guys are bringing up so many larger ideas in terms of because um, this is a very specific study on sound with Brandon four five one. This conversation is pointing into a more a larger direction of of just how teachers need to to let go a little bit about being the expert and invite student voices more into their classroom, which I think is a I think it's a great conversation, important conversation to have, um, and I, I appreciate that that's um, that that conversation is went in that way. Um, Rob, anything to add to to advice for teachers or to to this conversation? Yeah, I was just I was just thinking about that idea of listening to students, which is so fundamental to to good teaching. I think. Um, but my friend Linda Christensen talks about building curriculum from students' lives, which is mm -hmm. a kind of critical literacy that is, it's so fundamental and so central to my belief about teaching and learning. Um, building curriculum from students' lives means making space in the curriculum for students to bring things into the classroom, um, aspects of their experience, their interests, their passions, their desires, their talents. And that requires that we maybe diversify what we think is in, is acceptable in the classroom. So uh, expanding our notion of texts, you were talking a little bit about that, the ways that multiliteracies and scholars in the field and multimodality have changed how we think about what literacy is and what counts as texts. The more we are able to do that in different ways, 
I think the more people feel welcomed and expected in our classrooms and our teaching practices. And sound is one of the many ways I think that we found to do that. Um, but I think uh, as the article points out, and I think as Doug, you, you've shared in some of the examples that you've talked about today, uh, all of us are experiencing sound and are listening and taking in the world through sound every day, all of the time. And yet there are very few opportunities that young people are provided to engage with sound and listening in classrooms in the ways that we've highlighted in the, in the article. Um, and I just, I, I guess I would recommend fundamentally that teachers are open to listening to learning from students, but that these ways of listening and learning alongside students just present all new possibilities for thinking about what could happen in your teaching. Yeah, that's well said, Rob. Well, Rob, Doug, this has been a very enjoyable conversation. I feel like we could continue to talk a long time about these ideas, um, but I appreciate you guys spending the time. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. It's really great to have the conversation and also to even to have the article in, in, in the journal. And yeah, so thank you so much. Absolutely.